Hey, it's Rachel. Alex Wagner has a brand new show here on MSNBC. It's called Alex Wagner Tonight. Take a listen and then go subscribe to Alex Wagner Tonight, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us this hour. We are expecting tonight, any minute now, actually, a filing from the Department of Justice responding to Donald Trump's lawsuit requesting that a special master review documents retrieved from his Palm Beach home. Donald Trump sued the Justice Department last week to stop the review of those documents in a move many are seeing as a delay tactic. In that lawsuit, Trump's lawyers claimed that he always gave the government complete cooperation. Well, the Justice Department has until midnight tonight to respond to those claims. And by all accounts, they sure have a lot to say. Yesterday, the department asked the judge permission to go beyond the 20-page filing limit and submit a 40-page response, 40 pages, to Trump's lawsuit. The government said it needed the extra pages in order to, quote, adequately address the legal and factual issues raised by Trump's motion. And again, that filing could come literally any moment now. That DOJ filing could potentially shed more light on the government's criminal investigation and will no doubt serve as a 40-page rebuttal to Donald Trump's claims of complete cooperation. Remember that one of the three crimes the Justice Department is investigating is obstruction of not just an investigation, but even just plain old government functions like preserving presidential records. And there has been a lot of concern that Donald Trump has not been on the up and up when it comes to important classified information. For example, throughout his presidency, there was a ton of reporting that Trump liked to rip up documents and notes. I mean, the National Archives even confirmed that some Trump White House records that he had been trying to shield, incidentally, from the January 6th committee, that those had been ripped up and taped back together again. There is even a report that Trump allegedly flushed some papers down the toilet. This is not a man who is known for diligent records preservation by a long shot. And this time around, there are many lingering questions. Why was he squirreling away documents at Mar-a-Lago in the first place? And why didn't he just hand the documents over when the government first asked? All this shady paper shuffling and document destruction, all of that calls to mind another high-profile case that has become virtually synonymous with obstructing an ongoing investigation. And it involves a company called Enron a Houston-based energy company whose fraud scandal became one of the most famous high-profile cases ever of obstruction of justice. It happened 21 years ago, and it had everything. Corporate executives serving prison time, employees shredding and destroying documents, and one now defunct company caught up in that scandal, Arthur Anderson, Enron's accounting firm. The indictment claims that on October 19th, Anderson learned Enron was under investigation. And soon the shredders at Anderson's office at Enron ran virtually nonstop for a month in what was called an unparalleled effort to destroy evidence. Shredding also occurred in Chicago, Portland, Oregon, and London. Anderson's response today? Defiance. In a statement, it calls the obstruction of justice charge baseless and a gross abuse of government power. It took a federal jury 10 days to find the accounting giant guilty of obstruction of justice. And while the conviction was later overturned by the Supreme Court on a technicality, the Enron and Arthur Anderson scandals, as well as similar large-scale corporate frauds at WorldCom and Tyco, they all led Congress to pass and George W. Bush to sign the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002. 
That law instituted a number of reforms clamping down on corporate fraud. One of those reforms was this statute, 18 U.S. Code Section 1519. It tightened the penalties for destroying or concealing any record with the intent to obstruct just about any federal government function, including investigations. Section 1519 is one of the three criminal statutes the Department Department of Justice cited in its application for a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, obstruction of a federal investigation. So there is an active question about whether or not the stuff Anderson and Enron did 20 years ago is akin to what Donald Trump has been doing with this new criminal investigation. Is it the same kind of obstruction? You know, the illegal kind? What's clear is that Donald Trump certainly has some explaining to do. For starters, we learned from the unsealed search warrant documents that the Justice Department believed, quote, evidence might be destroyed if the warrant's existence was made public. And from the FBI affidavit, there was, quote, probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at Mar-a-Lago. The FBI affidavit explained how for months the National Archives sought to recover the documents from the former president without success. Remember, the archives didn't get those initial 15 boxes of documents until January of this year. Why did it take Trump so long to hand over those documents? Why did one of Trump's attorneys sign a statement telling the DOJ in June that, to the best of their knowledge, all classified documents had been handed over when that was obviously not the case? Why did Trump allegedly not keep the remaining documents preserved in the storage room at Mar-a-Lago under lock and key, as instructed, shortly after that June visit from investigators? Why did subpoenaed surveillance footage later show, according to The New York Times, people moving boxes in and out and, quote, appearing to change the containers some documents were held in? And why? Again, after that June visit from investigators and after months of back and forth with the DOJ and the National Archives, why were troves of classified documents still at Mar-a-Lago on August 8th? And why were they in Trump's office and in his bedroom in addition to the storage room? Why not just cooperate with the investigation? I want to bring in now the great Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and a former senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team. He was also, I think you could see him, and yes, there he is, head of the DOJ's Enron Task Force, which prosecuted the Arthur Anderson accounting firm for, you guessed it, obstruction of justice. It is a thrill and a delight to have you on set. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. I have to say it's it's odd seeing a photo from that many years ago. <laughs> it's odd that we're talking about obstruction of justice and paper shredding all over again, isn't it? Absolutely. And one of the things that's really interesting is that the work that Sarbanes-Oxley did is actually really coming home now because the law that was changed and fixed, which is 1519, which mm-hmm. is the law that everyone was surprised to see in the search warrant, actually really fixed some of the problems that we had in prosecuting Arthur Anderson. The main one that I think is relevant here is in Arthur Anderson, there was this anomaly and ambiguity about whether there had to be an official proceeding at the time of the obstruction. And there was an issue there about whether the SEC had actually commenced an official proceeding. Mm -hmm. Here, that's not in 1519 at all. As you correctly said, it just has to be something within the administration of an agency or department of the United States. So that fix in Sarbanes-Oxley is something that the department's taking advantage of. Yeah, and it could be a fix for Donald Trump. Um, Let's just start with the the documents that we're waiting for at this hour, right? Um, And it, it pertains to all of this, these claims about cooperation and obstruction. 
Uh, the DOJ is going to file 40 pages of paper responding to President Trump's request for a special master. I'm not going to ask you to tell the future, but the mere fact that they're asking the judge to double the like, page limit suggests yeah. they have a lot to say. What are you looking for? Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, um, the judge actually ordered the department to respond to everything in the submission, not just to the special master request. And then the department, in asking for the 40 pages, said that they were going to respond to the law and the facts. The law, I think everyone uh, you know, has been talking about how there's not a lot of law to support what it is that Trump is asking for. It's everyone's focusing on the facts. Yeah. So as you said, the issue of Donald Trump saying that he was continuously cooperating is one that I would hope to see some refutation of that. And then the other is what exactly happened in June of this year at that meeting in Mar-a-Lago where, if you remember, Donald Trump in his papers made it sound, and this is hyperbole on my part, but, you know, this is the, the best safe. And I kept it under the, the <laughs> absolute best lock and key. And he has an FBI agent saying, oh, now I understand why it's totally safe. And, you know, it just didn't have the ring of truth. And it'd be nice to see the department taking that up and saying this is what we say happened. Yeah, I, it, it goes right to the heart of the matter when it, we're talking about obstruction, right? The, the, the president actually was his word bond. And apparently it's not because it wasn't all just under lock and key. It must not have been a master lock that he used because yeah. those papers ended up all over the house. And I, and I just don't think with the, this Department of Justice in Merrick Garland that these kind of misrepresentations are going to put him in a good stead when the department has to make the discretionary call, assuming they can they have enough proof to charge. The next question they have to decide is, should we charge? Because you don't always bring every case. Having this pattern of misrepresentations to the court is really not going to be something that is a plus factor on his side of the ledger. I mean, it, it, you get the sense that the DOJ makes its voice heard through these filings, right? There is, um, in his filing, President Trump's legal team accused the DOJ of political bias uh, in the law lawsuit last week. Politics cannot be allowed to impact the administration of justice. President Donald J. Trump is the clear front runner in the 2024 pr Republican presidential primary and in the 2024 general election, should he decide to run. Just a little bit of burnishing of Trump's <laughs> ego in the, in the process of all of that. But would you expect that the Department of Justice is going to push back on that? In no. No. no, I think they're going to take, take the high road on that. I think they're going to deal with the actual facts relevant um, to the to the issues and not deal with his claims about how he's doing in any potential. <laughs> not his like um, his polling numbers in, in uh, exactly. you know, red states. But in terms of this notion that somehow this is politically motivated, would you expect them to respond to that or in some way address it? You know, I think that is something that they won't need to say. I think they're going to be judged by their actions. And, you know, frankly, I think one of the things that I think was really good about Merrick Garland speaking and giving a press conference is he was sort of exhibit A mm -hmm. to he's not political. I mean, he's such an earnest man. Yeah. And so I don't think there's anything they can say that would change anyone's minds one way or the other on that. I think they're going to just stick to the facts and the law. Just the facts, ma'am. I do wonder, um, as we talk about the lawyering of all of this, we know that um, 
Evan Corcoran drafted a letter that Evan Corcoran, the, one of the president's lawyers, drafted a letter that Christina Bob, another one of his lawyers, signed, affirming to the Justice Department in June that they had all the documents that were at Mar-a-Lago, which later proved to be untrue. Um, do you think they risk exposure there? We know that Donald Trump has brought on a new legal eagle to his case, uh, Chris Kyes. Uh, who was a former advisor to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Do you think that's indicative of them being concerned about their lawyers, Christina Bob and Evan Corcoran, having exposure? Well, I think they're, they either have exposure or they may be witnesses. So in the special counsel investigation, there was an analogous situation where Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, the um, campaign manager and deputy campaign manager, had made representations to the Justice Department through an attorney. That attorney was totally unwitting, clearly did not know that she was making false representations. But Chief Judge Howell let us um, put her on as a witness and to ask her questions about where she got the information mm -hmm. from. And, you know, I can definitely see the department following that. They have now a clear precedent from the chief judge of the D.C. District Court. Um, and so I think for those two lawyers, one of the things, if they're witnesses, they can't also be counsel. Right. So I can see that would be one reason to bring on additional people. I was impressed that anybody wanted to sign on to this case, given how complicated it's proven to be for President Trump. I think there are other reasons as well that you might not sign on to it. I think, um, as as a friend of mine, uh, Professor uh, Murray, has said, MAGA can also mean making attorneys get attorneys. Um, and so that's been a That's like tradition. a bar association joke. Yeah, it's a little inside lawyer joke. <laughs> yeah. But I like it. Um, could this not actually be the—this is a terrible way of phrasing a question. I will rephrase. Um is it possible that there are actually still more documents? We have some initial reporting from The Washington Post and The New York Times, um, namely that the Justice Department investigation is continuing, suggesting officials are not done. They're not certain whether they've recovered everything um, from Mar-a-Lago or elsewhere. And the archives also may not be finished. Some archives officials believe there still might be records missing. I mean, do you again, I'm not asking you to predict the weather, but. Um, I think there are two things to be concerned about. One is if there are additional documents at Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster or um, in Trump Tower. The other is even if the physical documents are all um, sort of have been re recouped from the, by the government, has the information been disseminated in mm -hmm. some way? Um, and there have been reports about certain information, for instance, about the president of France, that that's been communicated. But has any other information been communicated? And that's where I think the DNI, the head of the intelligence community, I think is going to be looking very hard at that issue to see, has anyone been told the information contained in the documents, even if the physical documents have been brought back into the government? Oh, there are questions that beget more questions that beget more yep. questions. Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and a former senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team. Thank you for being here. And thank you for the lawyer jokes. <laughs> well. Up next here tonight, President Biden summons Dark Brandon, calling out the Republican Party and not mincing words. You can't be pro-law enforcement and pro-insurrection. You can't be a party of law and order and call the people who attacked the police on January 6th patriots. You can't do it. We will talk live with senior Biden advisor and former Atlanta mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms about the president's new aggressive push to hold Republicans accountable. 
And the GOP is trying to have it both ways and game the internet on key issues. My money is on the internet. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Let me say this to my MAGA Republican friends in Congress. Don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. Don't tell me. Can't do it. For God's sake, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Look. You're either on the side of a mob or the side of the police. You can't be pro-law enforcement and pro-insurrection. You can't be a party of law and order and call the people who attacked the police on January 6th Patriots, you can't do it. That was President Biden today on the trail in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, calling out in no uncertain terms the hypocrisy of Republicans who refused to condemn the January 6th attacks. It was the latest appearance of what you might call Biden 2.0 or dark Brandon. With his approval rating rising, a string of significant victories in Congress and his predecessor facing serious ongoing legal drama, the president is unleashing pretty wildly pointed attacks on Republicans ahead of the midterms. Last week, Biden likened the MAGA movement to semi-fascism and called the Republicans enthralled to it a threat to our very democracy. Later this week, Biden plans to deliver a primetime address warning that Americans' rights are under attack by anti-democratic forces within the, you guessed it, GOP. And today, the president hammered Republicans over their recent attacks on the FBI following the search of Donald Trump's Florida home. Now it's sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI threatening the life of law enforcement agents and their families for simply carrying out the law and doing their job. Look, I want to say this as clear as I can. There's no place in this country, no place for endangering the lives of law enforcement. No place. None, never, period. 
I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. There are 10 weeks until the midterm election, friends, and President Biden would seem to have his eyes on the clock. Joining us now is Keisha Lance Bottoms, White House Senior Advisor for Public Engagement and the former mayor, of course, of Atlanta. Mayor Bottoms, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the new position. Um, Let me just first start with President Biden, who, to borrow a phrase from the Obama era, seems very fired up and ready to go. I wonder if you believe, you know, amid the swirl of Trump's legal problems and the recently notched legislative victories, whether this is a real moment for him to go on the offensive in a way that we really haven't seen the president in recent months. Well, what we know is that President Biden has been fired up his entire term. But what we have are a string of victories uh, to support the work that he's been so passionate about. What we are seeing uh, is his work in action, his leadership in action. What we talked about during the campaign was needing his leadership at this time, someone who had experience, someone who knew how to get things done with Congress. And this is just a continuation. We saw him today very passionate about something that we should all be concerned about, and that's safety in America. When you hear the president give statistics that talk about the thousands of children who've been killed by gun violence, the number one killer of children in America, that he knows that history will judge us all on how we respond to this moment. And I'm so proud to have seen the president respond in the way that he did today. I mean, certainly he's been talking about his record, but he's also been launching some pretty pretty pointed attacks against the GOP. And I wonder if the White House believes this is the moment to try and turn the conversation back on Republicans, look at their you know chance of defunding the FBI and reframe the conversation about who is better in terms of law and order. Is that sort of one of the goals of all of this? Well, what the president is doing is calling it like he sees it. He is giving facts. You can't support law enforcement and support an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We all witness that. This is not something that's an opinion. This is a fact. And what the president has said uh, and his actions have shown is that he supports law enforcement, but he also supports our communities. What the president has been very clear about is that we want law enforcement officers in our communities who are guardians, not warriors, who have care and concern for the people they are sworn to protect and serve. And the president knows at the end of the day, law enforcement wants to return home safely, uh, as well as communities wanting to return home safely to their families when they've had interaction with law enforcement. And supporting law enforcement and supporting our communities are not mutually exclusive. And the president has made that very clear where he stands. And when you look at uh, the support of the American Rescue Fund funds, every single Republican in Congress voted against that. These funds went into our cities, not just to support law enforcement, but in cities like Atlanta and communities across America, they helped us pay sanitation workers. They helped us bridge the gap in our budgets when we were facing economic uncertainty uh, at the height of COVID. So the president is is continuing to remind the people 
of why he was elected president. It's because he puts people first and we're seeing that in action in his policies. I know you're st- stressing the um, work in terms of community support when we're talking about law enforcement, but he did say explicitly today, um, I am opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. We know that that is a, you know, it's a, it's a, there are some Democrats within the party who, who wouldn't agree with that and who have said publicly they don't agree with that. Um, is there a place for them in Joe Biden's part, a Democratic Party? Well, that's the beauty of Joe Biden being the leader of the Democratic Party. There's room to disagree, to respectfully disagree. And what the president has been very clear about is that he supports law enforcement, but also supporting communities is not mutually exclusive. And I always said uh, when I served as mayor of Atlanta, we can stop having police officers on our streets when we no longer have crime. And what people have to remember, it's not just about law enforcement showing up when something bad happens. Think about when you have that fender bender and you're waiting on the side of the road for three hours for a police officer to show up and write a report. Or if you're attending a large event or a concert, you want law enforcement in place. But also um, in the Safer America plan, What the president is doing is asking for funding to help support mental health uh, professionals who can respond instead of law enforcement when someone is experiencing a mental health crisis. Drug courts, expanding drug courts. We know a number of people who enter uh, the criminal justice system have substance abuse problems, making sure that there's funding in place for after school programs, making sure that there's funding in place for crime intervention programs that we know have been successful in cities across America. So this is really a holistic approach. It's not just about putting officers on our streets, but really about asking Congress to support programs that really get to the root causes of crime in our communities. Let me ask you just one more question. It's not going unnoticed that this is the president's third trip to Pennsylvania, or he'll be making three trips to Pennsylvania in the next week. It bears mentioning that John Fetterman, the Democratic Senate candidate, is leading his Republican opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz, by 13 points. Josh Shapiro running for uh, governor on the Democratic side, leading Doug Mastriano by 11 points. I wonder if we can expect President Biden to allocate his uh, uh, very powerful resources as the president of the United States to other Senate races that are perhaps closer, like the one in your uh, state of Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, which I believe has uh, a two point spread well within the margin of error. Is he going to go down to Atlanta? Well, I think what you will see is the president will go wherever he is needed and wanted. And we know Pennsylvania is home for the president. Um, so it, 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 it's very familiar territory to him. And he's always happy to go there. Um, but the president is, is watching closely what's happening across the country. And what we know uh, with the support of Congress, President Biden has been able to get things done. And he'll continue to remind people that elections matter with the support of Congress, we have been able to get funding into our cities with the support of Congress, with bipartisan support. Uh, we were able to sign some of the toughest gun legislation uh, in the last 30 years. And the president's calling for more, an all out ban on assault weapons. So the president wants people uh, who want to work with him to get things done on behalf of the American people. And if that means going to Georgia and Pennsylvania to do that, I'm sure we'll see more of him uh, in many, many places. 
We will be on the lookout for the travel itinerary. <laughs> Keisha Lance Bottoms, White House Senior Advisor for Public Engagement. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Still ahead, the politics of abortion get very real for Republican politicians and activists as they realize their views are wildly unpopular. We'll be right back. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. first lessons of politics 101 is that when you try to win a primary race, you campaign to your base, the people who tend to be more ideologically, shall we say, focused than your average American voter. If you make it through to the general election, you soften your edges and campaign towards a more elusive middle. That is the conventional wisdom, at least. And we are watching exactly that play out in any number of races this cycle for Republican candidates in particular, especially those who pledged allegiance to Donald Trump in order to get their party's nomination. For example, the Republican candidate who is running to unseat Democratic Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, it's this guy, Blake Masters. He is a 36-year-old venture capitalist and protege of billionaire Trump supporter and right-wing kingmaker Peter Thiel. Since Masters won his party's endorsement earlier this month, he's been systematically trying to rewrite history in terms of what he stands for. But unfortunately for Blake Masters, the Internet is sometimes forever. The most recent example of this, published late last night by CNN's K-File, compared the current version of Blake Masters' campaign website with the one that existed just a day before he won his primary election. His website used to have the following language, quote, the 2020 election was a rotten mess. If we had had a free and fair election, President Trump would be sitting in the Oval Office today and America would be so much better off. All of that has now been deleted from Mr. Masters' website. The stuff about the election being a rotten mess and not somehow free and fair, gone. And then there is his position on abortion. NBC News was the first to point out that Masters, quote, softened his rhetoric, rewriting or erasing five of his six positions, including this one. I am 100 percent pro-life, or at least that's what it said last Thursday morning, because that language is, too, now gone, as is his support for a federal personhood law, ideally a constitutional amendment that recognizes that unborn babies are human beings that may not be killed. This sort of politically convenient amnesia or strategic deletion frenzy is sweeping the GOP. Over in Michigan, the Detroit, Detroit News reported this weekend that a Republican state senator who is running for Congress, a man named Tom Barrett, removed a section from his website under the heading values. I will refrain from commenting on the irony there. Anyway, you can see what it used to say, courtesy of the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. 
quote, I am a Christian and I believe our elected leaders have a responsibility to represent the values our faith teaches. Protecting individual rights includes protecting the unborn. I will always work to protect life from conception. Barrett told the Detroit News that he hasn't actually changed how he feels about abortion, which based on previous statements means he's against abortions, even in the case of rape or incest. Barrett said, quote, I am sure we probably were updating things based on the issues that were most salient right now. Hmm. I can think of another reason why Barrett's abortion values were erased. In 2022, the politics of abortion are terrible for Republicans. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, Democratic voters have been awoken and they are enraged and they are galvanized, which maybe helps to explain why certain groups in Michigan are working extra hard to get a citizen-led ballot initiative off of the Michigan ballots this November. Because if it passes... That ballot measure would enshrine the right to abortion in Michigan's constitution. And that is the sort of stuff you cannot erase or delete very easily. But it's not on the ballot yet. The coalition behind the initiative spent months gathering signatures to put the measure on the November ballot. And so far, they have passed one major hurdle by collecting nearly twice as many valid signatures as required to get that petition certified. The next hurdle comes tomorrow when the state board of canvassers meets to vote on whether or not to actually put this thing on the ballot and let Michigan voters have their say on reproductive choice. But a group is now challenging the way the ballot initiative is formatted. It's saying there aren't enough spaces or the spaces aren't big enough between some of the words. And it is resulting in what they call incomprehensible argle bargle. Here's an example of what they mean. One line of the proposed text does kind of look like it's all one word. Decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy, including but not limited to prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care. It's kind of tight, the spacing there. So what happens now? I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of Michiganders have signed a petition saying, yes, we would like a chance to weigh in on abortion this November. But now at the 11th hour, they may be denied that chance because of formatting errors. According to an election lawyer and former chair of the Michigan Democratic Party, quote, non-material changes can be made, which is good, right? You'd think that Republicans who have spent the last few weeks making very material changes to, well, a lot of things, you'd think that they, of all people, would understand. Stay tuned. Tonight, a race to distribute water in Jackson, Mississippi. Cars lined up for miles outside distribution centers full of locals hoping for water left empty-handed after the supply quickly ran out. Water that they are giving, well, you can't get to because they line me so damn long. For weeks, Jackson residents have been under a boil water notice put in place last month because of contaminated water concerns. Now they're on the brink of having no water at all. State officials say flood water complications impacted storage tanks, pumps, and water flow, resulting in a failure at Jackson's main plant. The lack of water was due to pressure, a lack of pressure in the system. The water is not safe to drink, and I would even say it's not safe to brush your teeth with. So that is all happening right now. But as far back as 100 years ago, the leaders of Jackson, Mississippi, were worried about water infrastructure in that city. This is a headline from the local paper in 1922. Jackson's great growth develops new problem. 
A population boom had pushed the city's water treatment plant to the limit. As the city of Jackson grew and expanded, the problems with that city's water supply only got worse. But to truly understand how Mississippi's capital city found itself with a water supply that has been pushed way past the brink, it is worth looking at what happened in October of the year 1969. By that point, it was already the law of the land that racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. That had been decided 15 years earlier by the Supreme Court in Brown versus the Board of Education. But Mississippi had defied the court, keeping its schools completely segregated until 1969, when the Supreme Court essentially had to come back and say, Mississippi, do it now. At that point, the high court came out and said that continued operation of racially segregated schools under the standard of all deliberate speed is no longer constitutionally permissible. In other words, integrate immediately. White parents in Jackson were so upset by this ruling and about the potential for their children to attend school with black children that they packed a city auditorium to attend a raucous rally and air their grievances. The governor at the time, who was himself a staunch segregationist, he was so worried about parents becoming violent that he called for restraint, saying, quote, let us remember that the public schools, after all, are still public property and willful damage or destruction of these properties is senseless. It's like cutting off a nose to spite the face. That anger among white parents did not ultimately stop school integration, but it did drastically change the city of Jackson, Mississippi. It is estimated that in the three years after Jackson schools were integrated, more than 11,000 white students left Jackson's school district. And with them also left many of the white, wealthy taxpayers who moved just outside the city. All the while, Jackson's water infrastructure continued to deteriorate. And the fight for who's going to pay for it, well, that fight continues to this day. Jackson was left with outdated subpar pipes and no money for a long-term structural overhaul. And over the decades, it has only gotten worse. Which brings us to today, August 30th, 2022, and the complete system breakdown triggered by heavy flooding with raw, untreated water flowing through Jackson's taps, unfit for drinking. People in the city are now stocking up on bottled water so they can do the most basic everyday things like cook and bathe themselves. Meanwhile, Jackson's public schools are being forced to hold virtual classes, once more impacting the education of young children in a critical moment following the pandemic. It is all very, very bad, but it is a crisis, a total system failure that has been decades in the making. Joining us now is Nishambi Lambright, a Jackson native. She is also the executive director of One Voice Mississippi, a statewide leadership development and policy advocacy organization. Ms. Lambright, thank you so much for making time to be here tonight. I can only imagine what life is like for the residents of Jackson, Mississippi. Can you tell us how people have been surviving without running water in the United States of America in the year 2022? It's been really, really tough for us here in Jackson. Um, it's unimaginable to think about waking up every morning and not being able to take a shower or having to use bottled water to brush your teeth and having to use bottled water to wash dishes and to um, cook with um, and to even um, provide bottled water uh, to your pets because they can't drink uh, the uh, water that's, uh, you know, being used, um, 
you know, coming out of the, the faucets. So it, it's been really, really um, tough on us um, here. And to imagine that we just went through this last year um, and we haven't resolved this issue yet um, is very discouraging. Um, for us here. Yeah, I think it bears mentioning that this has happened once before. The problems at hand today are, I think, even worse than they were a year ago, but it doesn't give a lot of hope about a long-term solution here. What resources are available to people and are advocates working to try and solve this problem with local leaders? I mean, is there any sense that this problem is going to abate anytime soon? We are very hopeful that with federal funding, we can fix this problem. Um, as an advocate in Jackson, and I guess I have to start with, um, I, I listened to your description of the history um, of Jackson, and I was born in Jackson in 1973. So, you know, my family is, is rooted here, and I, I've seen Jackson go through a lot of changes, and I've been very hopeful about Jackson growing up here and going um, to high school here and going to college here and um, seeing um, a city grow and also seeing um, people leave the city and seeing um, people not invest in the city and, and seeing people leave the city and, and, and say, I'm not going to leave my business here and I'm not going to um, support the school system here. And so I and I've, I've seen um, people disinvest um, in, in this city. And so I know that um, with federal funding and with state funding, we could have had this problem solved years ago. And I've seen um, our city leadership attempt to fix this problem over the years. But this problem has taken so long to get to this point. This problem, like you said, has taken 100 years to get to this point. Um, this is not an overnight problem. Yeah. I mean, we have to leave it there. I hope we are going to continue our coverage of this. It bears mentioning that the Republican governor of the state is the person who controls some of these purse strings. It is an enormous amount of money for a huge problem. But what is happening in Jackson is untenable. It is un-American that people should have to live like this. Nishambi Lambright, Jackson native and executive director of One Voice Mississippi. Thank you. Good luck. Keep us posted on everything down there. Thank you so much. We have one more story tonight, how parents in one suburban Texas school district are challenging a bizarre new state law and fighting the encroachment of Christian nationalism in public schools in the process. Stay with us. If you send your kids to public school in Texas, they are now required by law to see this, quote, in God we trust. That sign is now displayed in each of the 11 schools in one district in the Dallas-Fort Worth area because Texas passed a law last year making it mandatory, mandatory to have this hang in public schools if someone donates it. And here are some of the members of the school board in that particular district looking super excited to get these signs donated, courtesy of a company called Patriot Mobile. Remember Patriot Mobile? We talked about them recently on the show. They are a Christian nationalist mobile phone company responsible for pumping money into school board races in order to retake schools from woke liberals. Patriot Mobile successfully won majorities in four school districts in suburban Fort Worth. 
Now, after the far right company donated those in God we trust signs last week, some parents and activists were a little concerned and got creative. And they decided to present their own signs to the school board with in God we trust translated into Arabic and (laughs) against a backdrop of gay pride colors. They look a little different from the Patriot Mobile signs. The man you see here, Shravan Krishna, is a parent whose kids go to the school in that district. And at a board meeting yesterday, he asked the school board to accept this donation of these no posters. The school board didn't even let Mr. Krishna finish before interrupting him with a flat-out denial. Their reasoning was that they had already met their so-called quota for In God We Trust signs. I mean, who knew there was a quota? Apparently no one, because there isn't actually a quota. Mr. Krishna went on to argue that nowhere in the law does it say schools are limited to one sign per school. The school board can, it seems, accept these signs, even written in Arabic and with rainbow colors, but it refuses to. Which raises a new and very legitimate question. Is that against the law? Mr. Krishna told us that he and his fellow parents and activists are exploring their legal options and they intend to find out. And we, in turn, are definitely going to keep an eye on this. That you can trust. That does it for us tonight. Hey, it's Rachel. Alex Wagner has a brand new show here on MSNBC. It's called Alex Wagner Tonight. Take a listen and then go subscribe to Alex Wagner Tonight wherever you get your podcasts.